And we have come to the section of our study of the book of Job that uh, I think we've just been longing to get to because uh, the first 31 chapters are, as we've been seeing, a, a lot of explanations about uh, how God does not run the world and uh, inappropriate reasons for suffering. We have seen Job and his three friends and these cycles of discourses going back and forth with each other as the the friends have pretty much if you boiled down their arguments are simply job you must have sinned you you did something wrong and that's why this suffering has come upon you the first two chapters of job told us that's not the case job has not sinned he is blameless he is upright he fears god and he turns away from evil job's answer has simply boiled down to well there's a mistake on god's part he's not just when it comes to my situation and inevitably this will get corrected and God will sort this out but in the meantime there is a lack of justice and so these friends have gone in this cycle again and again and again and you come to the very end of chapter 31 and we're told thus the words of Job are ended this is the end of their speeches and we have been left then at a stalemate the three friends think the answer is that Job is being punished for his sins and that's why suffering exists in Job's answer is God made a mistake and that's why I'm suffering and so now we are introduced into the answer portion of sorts if you will because now we come into a character that we haven't read about yet his name is Elihu and we'll read about him in a minute and when Elihu is done God is going to come on the scene and he is going to speak and he is going to uh, give his answers in regards to these and so uh, it's really these five Final 10 chapters that give us some explanations about what is happening versus we needed up to this point all of this time to dismantle all of the false arguments that we frequently use in trying to explain suffering and explain how God runs the world, commonly use misunderstandings and mistaught concepts that the book has now uh, dismantled before us. So now we're, we're presented with the first five verses of Job 32. Job 32 verse 1 says, And these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzzite of the family of Ram burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And that gives us the introduction to this man named Elihu. And for the first time, as we've read through the book of Job, you now are aware that there must have been an audience. All of a sudden, here is this man named Elihu, and you go, wait, I thought this was a discussion of four. And now it turns out there's many more people that are involved, and we're aware of one man's name named uh, Elihu. And, And so up to this point, we're told that he's been silent, and he's been listening to the whole discourse as it's 
that's gone on. And he, in his own words, will state in a moment what the narrator tells us there, that Elihu had waited to speak because Job and the others were older. And so he's allowing the wiser and the older to speak about these matters. And Elihu has sat back silently and he has just been watching this happen and listen to all of the arguments unfold. And so one of the big questions that really arises as you approach this section is how should we read him? What should we understand about what he's going to say? Is he going to give us godly thoughts and godly wisdom and be helpful in his discussion about things concerning God and concerning Job? Or is he going to be like the other three friends who have been miserable as being comforters and give terrible advice such that we ought to read him in such a way and go, what he's saying is wrong. We've done that with the three friends that we've observed. So many of their arguments are just flat out wrong. And so how should we read Elihu? Is he speaking the truth and we should learn what he says? Or is he speaking falsehood and we should reject what he says like the other three friends? So let's consider some of the arguments. So here's some of the arguments that are presented as to why Elihu's counsel ought to be rejected. And you run to the, the scholars and the commentators and you hope they're going to help you, right? It's a pretty much a 50-50 split of how they read them. Some think, yep, Elihu gives good counsel and others go, nope, he gives terrible counsel and he shouldn't be followed whatsoever. So I'll present to you some of the arguments that are given on both sides and allow you to weigh them for yourself and then I'll tell you where I'm at in these things and how we will study Elihu's words. One of the big reasons why people will take Elihu's counsel and reject it is because a lot of the things that he says sounds an awful lot like what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said. If you read Elihu's words, you'll go, well, that sounds a lot like what these other guys have been saying all along. And so if he's going to say the exact same thing as the other three, then surely we should reject what they're saying. I'd like to caution that, though, and make a couple of observations. First, one of the things that we've talked about as we've looked at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is the things that they are frequently saying are not untrue or unscriptural, but they're being misapplied to Job's circumstance. We've noted many times the Proverbs do say that the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be blessed. But to apply that proverb principle to Job is incorrect because Job has not sinned. He is blameless and upright and fears God and turns away from evil. And so it would be a mistake just to say, well, just because he says similar things to the three friends therefore he's saying wrong things would not be accurate. It wouldn't help us one way or another to know if Elihu is giving us good advice or bad advice based, based upon that. It's interesting that Elihu himself though will say the words that he's going to say are not the same as what the three friends have said. And I think that's an important thing to underline. As Elihu does not come along and say, well, I can't believe you three guys did such a terrible job with Job. And so what I'm going to do is use the exact same arguments to Job and think that's going to do any better. 
That doesn't make a lot of sense to where we are in the book. We've seen this line of argument peter out altogether such that Bildad has, what, about six verses and Zophar doesn't even get a final speech as we've moved through the book of Job because this line of thinking has now been shut down. To use in our terminology, they have beaten the dead horse at this point and we've heard all there is to say about that kind of thinking. And Elihu is coming into this and he says, I'm not going to say what they said. So I don't know that it would be wise of us to read Elihu and go, well, he's saying the exact same thing when he himself says, I'm not going to say the same things that they've said. Let us be aware of that. Second, and the other big argument that people have about Job, I mean, in regards to Elihu, is that, well, Elihu just seems angry. And we already read that right here. I mean, every line says he's burning with anger just about, doesn't it? Verse 2, he burned with anger at Job. Verse 3, he burned with anger at Job's three friends. Verse 5, since there was no answer that came from the mouth of these three friends, he burned with anger. And so often the portrayal of Elihu is simply, he is a brash, young, angry man. And he is also full of hot air that's coming out of his mouth as he is arrogantly trumpeting his own wisdom and knowledge. And therefore he ought to be rejected and I would caution on that as well because yes it says that he has his anger burned at Job and his anger burns at Job's three friends but don't forget that so did God when we get to God speaking he's going to say the same thing when he speaks about the three friends in Job 42 He's angry at the three friends for what they have said. And we know that Job is not in the right when it comes to God coming to him about the things that Job has said because God is not going to appear and go, okay, Job, you did perfectly well done. He's going to tear him apart for a few chapters about the things that he said. So it is not inaccurate to say, is there a problem with the things that Job has said? Yes, God's going to say so. And is there a problem with the three, the three, the things that the three friends have said? Yes, God says so. And so this would not be helpful either to say, well, because Elihu's so angry about what these guys have said, that that would now disqualify his words. It may very well be that we could read Elihu's words as a righteous anger, as we often describe it, because Job has not spoken what is right, and the three friends have not spoken what is right. And Elihu is saying, somebody needs to say something what's right around here. Somebody needs to get, get in here and say, here's what is the truth of the matter. And I think that is the way that we ought to look at at that concept in dealing with these arguments about rejecting Elihu is that these do not appear to be strong enough to be able to say, let's now read him in a lens that says his counsel is incorrect and it is ungodly. Rather, when we talk about then how we should read him, I would suggest there are many reasons to accept his counsel. And what we ought to do is allow the text itself and the literature, since this is poetry, as is denoted in your scriptures there, to speak as to what Elihu is trying to do. Perhaps the most notable is that God does not condemn Elihu. I mean, that to me is one of the Trump statements in studying Job, is that God has much to say to Job about the things that Job has said. And then in chapter 42, goes and takes task of the three friends with the things they've said. They are in such error that Job needs to go pray for them, offer sacrifices for them because they have been wrong. But you'll notice conspicuously, Elihu has not said anything of. God does not come in and go, oh, and by the way, Elihu, he was wrong too. Nothing said about him. 
And that should be very weighty to us that we should read Elihu's words in a positive light, whereas we see that Job will be straightened out by God and the three friends are condemned by God. In terms of poetry and in terms of presentation of the book, it is interesting that of all the people speaking, Elihu's speeches are the longest. He gets the most amount of time, if you will, which is suggestive that we are now coming into true wisdom, into true counsel, which is only verified by the fact, if you remember, every time when one of Job's friends speaks, what does Job do? But rebut it. You're constantly being told, Eliphaz says something and Job goes, no, that's not right. And then Bildad will speak and Job will go, no, that's not right. And Zophar will speak and Job will go, that's not right. When Elihu speaks, he will then turn around and say, Job, if you have an answer for this, go ahead. If you would like to rebut me, go right ahead. And Job doesn't say a word. And so then Elihu continues on and speaks more about how God is operating and then stops again and says, would you like to say something at this point, Job? And Job doesn't say one word. And that should be very weighty to us is that if Elihu is charging Job incorrectly, then we have seen that Job is certainly willing to stand up and say, what you're saying is wrong. He has done that again and again and again and again throughout the book. He has defended and argued against these three friends so vehemently throughout the text. And yet when Elihu speaks, silence happens from Job. And Job does listen to everything that Elihu says, which leads to the finale in terms of the layout of the book, is you'll notice that the way the book is structured is that Elihu is presented as a forerunner for the arrival of God. As Elihu's speeches are preparing the way for God to now come into the scene and speak from the whirlwind and talk directly to Job. And so you have this buildup now after the stalemate happens and the end of chapter 31 says, thus the words of Job are ended. And so nobody else has anything to say. Elihu comes in and speaks and there is no rebuttal. There is no negative. There is no, this is wrong. And then immediately after Elihu speaks, God steps right in and continues the very line of argument that Elihu had begun. And so I believe these are the things that should be very weighty to us that as we read this young man speaking, that he speaks godly counsel and that what we are going to learn from him then is not a rejection of the words that he is saying about the way God runs the world and the reason for Job and what Job needs to learn. But rather, when you read Elihu, that you are looking at these things and going, okay, he is speaking the truth and he is offering godly wisdom. Caveat, that doesn't mean this is going to be easy. If you've read Elihu's words, it's very challenging to try to go, okay, now what exactly were you saying when you did that? Because it's easy to read Elihu and go, well, he's just said what the other three friends said. This is why so many will put him in the negative box that we shouldn't listen to him. So we're going to go carefully over his words over the next couple of lessons and be careful to point out what he says and see if we can clarify, is he saying the same thing as the three friends or perhaps he's not and perhaps it is different. So that sets us up for a beginning here. One of the reasons why people don't like Elihu is this introductory speech. Let's read it and then perhaps it will see. We'll see how it feels to you as well. Verse six. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. 
But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him. Him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share, and I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words, the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. And a lot of people read that and they go, oh, he's a blustery man. Because all all he basically says is, all right, I'm ready to speak for the whole chapter. You know, in our modern sensibilities of 140 characters or less, we want to say, well, just go ahead and say it already. This is poetry, though. We should not be critical of the length of the way these people speak and suggest that because they speak in a way that we personally don't like as 21st century Americans, that therefore what they're saying is wrong. That's not accurate at all. This is Hebrew poetry, and this is being spoken in that way. Notably, because Elihu is young. And so what he is begging for the audience to do, and he is begging for Job and begging for the three friends to do, is to please pay attention to him. And he recognizes the older should have taught the younger, and they should have taught wisdom. And that's why I stayed quiet. I have given you your opportunity to speak, but now that you have nothing else to say, I am now going to take my turn. And so I beg you to listen to what I have to say. He points out in verse 8 that he is going to to use godly wisdom. He's going to say that again in chapter 33. That the things that he intends to impart is not just simply whatever kind of ideas, but he believes he has godly wisdom and challenges that and contrasts that with the friends that he says, though you're older and wiser, you didn't have the spirit of the Almighty in you. You didn't say what are the, what is the will of God. And so therefore he asks everybody in this audience before him to listen to what he is about to say. I love that he challenges these three friends to take responsibility for the things that they they have said about Job. Because what they've turned around and said is, well, we can't answer his uh, statements, so we'll just let God deal with them. And thus they stop their words. And Elihu goes, really? That's the best you can do as well, since he's righteous in his own eyes. We're not going to say another word about it. Notice that's how verse 1 began, right? In chapter 32, the three men stopped saying a word because Job's righteous in his own eyes. So I guess it's not going to work. We're not going to do anything. And as we noted in our introduction, he makes the point in verse 14, he's not going to use the same answers and give the same speeches that these three friends have given 
And I love how he just basically says, I have a lot to say. <laughs> he describes it as, you know, I'm a wineskin about to burst. I've got so much to say, but he says, I'm going to be fair. He says, I'm not going to show partiality. I'm not going to flatter. I'm going to be straightforward in all the things I'm about to say. So chapter 32 is just preparing you for Elihu's instructions. Just going to say, all right, here it is. I'm going to prepare you now for all the things that I'm going to say. And notice that the counsel that I'm going to give you is different than what you've heard before. This will be valuable to you. And the reason I stayed quiet all this time is I was letting the older say their peace, but because they failed, I have to speak. Chapter 33 then is really where the correction of Job begins as Zelihun then takes that all the way to the end of his section in chapter 37. Notice what Elihu says, verse 1. Now, behold, now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, and the tongue of my mouth speaks. The words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. And so Elihu begins and he says, I'm going to teach you, and but you don't need to be afraid. I'm a human just like you. I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to destroy you and the things I'm saying. You can kind of get a sense of these three friends have been terrible to you. I'm not going to be that way. My words will not be heavy on you. Basically, I'm not going to say you're a terrible rot and that's the reason all your children died. You know, all the things that we've read these three friends say horrible, horrible things that they have declared to Job. He says, I'm not going to do that. And so I'm going to give you then these words from God. I'm going to tell you godly wisdom as I do that. The key then, if you will notice in verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression, I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me, he counts me as his enemy, he puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. This is a very important paragraph to understanding Elihu. Notice what he says. Elihu does not say, now here's your problem, Job. You must have been a sinner in your past life somewhere, and that's why all this stuff is happening. That's what the three friends of sin. Notice what Elihu is going to do. He says, I've heard what you've said. Elihu's argument has nothing to do with the actions of Job's past. That's what the three friends did over and over again, right? You must have done this. You must have sinned. You trampled the poor and the widows. I mean, they just make up all kinds of, you must have done all this. And Elihu doesn't do anything about past actions. He says, Here's what I've heard you say. And if you notice verses 9 through 11, is that an accurate representation of what Job has said? Absolutely. Job has said those words over and over and over again. That's exactly what Job has said. And so he's not even misrepresenting Job's words and saying, I heard you say, and then go off the handle about making some things up. Those are absolutely the words that Job has said. And we could go to the various passages where exactly he says those things. And this is where Elihu now comes in. Verse 12, behold, in this... You are not right. 
I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? Elihu comes in and says, These are the words that you've said. How can you say things like that? How can you say, if I had my time before God, God would have no answer to my words? And Elihu goes, I can't believe you said that. (laughs) How could you possibly say that? Who are you to say that God must answer you? And who are you to say that if you contended with him, God would be left speechless and would have no answer for you, Job? By the way, again, to confirm that Elihu is on the right track, God says this in chapter 40 and verse 2 when he tells Job, who are you to contend with me about the things that you've been saying? So Elihu and God are in line with the same line of reasoning and argument and saying, who are you to contend with God? Who are you to say that God is in the wrong and you are in the right? Who are you to say God needs to give me an answer? We've observed that in our Sunday night studies. We've really spent a lot of time in that in our Wednesday night studies looking at Job saying a lot of those bold things before God that, well, God couldn't answer me. God would not be able to stand before me because I would have right answers and he would vindicate me because of my arguments before him. And Elihu says, these are the things that I have heard. And I think it's important that verse 12, he said, it is in this you're not right. Your words against God, these are the things that are not right. In what you see Job wanting again and again in our study of of his complaint and in his discourses, he has constantly said, I need God to speak to me. I need my time before God. If I could just get my my time with him, I could be vindicated before him and he would hear my arguments and I would be made right. And this is the angle that Elihu now is going to take with Job. You notice in verse 14, For God speaks in one way and in two, though a man does not perceive it. In a dream and in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man to keep back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that are not seen stick out his soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death if there be for him an angel a mediator one of a thousand to declare to man what is right before him and he is merciful to him and says deliver him from going down into the pit I have found a ransom let his flesh become fresh with youth let him return to the days of his youthful vigor then man prays to God and he accepts him he sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness he sings before men and says I have sinned and perverted what is right and it was not repaid to me he has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light behold God does all these things twice three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak for I desire to justify you. 
If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. This is his first speech. I want you to notice one of the things that he says is that actually, Job, God has been speaking to you all along, but you haven't heard him in what he's telling you. And I think it's an interesting line of reasoning that Elihu takes. Now, he makes the observation, something that we know about the Old Testament, is that God did speak through visions and dreams, and he observes that very phenomenon as well. But here is the distinction, is that if you recall, the friends have said that there is really only one function for suffering when it's used by God, and that is punishment. That's all that God uses suffering for. So therefore, if you suffer, you must be punished by God. And if you're being punished by God, therefore you're wicked. That's been their whole song the whole time that they've gone about that. And Elihu says, there are other ways that God uses suffering. And that that's not the exclusive way by which God functions. That if you are suffering, that you would just sit back and go, well, I must have done something wrong. He makes the point and says, actually, God uses suffering purposefully. Particularly, we saw it in verses 17 and 18. That he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Here, Elihu is simply saying that if it wasn't for suffering, we would all fall into the pit. We would be making all kinds of terrible decisions and we would not choose to seek after God. And he makes the point that we should look at suffering as an instructive concept. It is teaching us and therefore is a grace of God. It is something that we have, I think, considered many, many times. And I know none of us like it because I don't like it. We wish that we could learn everything that we need to learn about how to live life and be right before God through only good times. All right? I just want to, you know, teach me only through the good. We don't learn through good. When times are good, we're just carrying along and everything's great and we're not really paying a whole lot of attention. It's suffering that wakes us up. It is suffering that we go, oh, hmm, I need to be more reflective and contemplate about those things. The writer of Ecclesiastes said the same thing. Why is it better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting? Because in the house of feasting, we're not thinking about consequences. We're not thinking about God. We're just enjoying life. But he says in the house of mourning, morning then people stop and reflect you see that at a funeral all the time now everybody goes hmm i need to think about my life i need to think about what's going to happen when i die i need to think about some things in a time of feasting people don't think like that i believe one of the reasons why our culture is the where it is and all of our prosperity and all of our fun and wealth and all of that why consider god we're doing just fine we're just going to keep enjoying life and keep on sinning it is suffering that is an, an used to be by God to be instructive, that when things would happen, we would stop and consider and reflect. In fact, in verses 23 through 30, that's where Elihu there really draws that point in stronger and stronger as he tries to get him to see that this is God being merciful and trying to be instructive and trying to cause humans to listen. And notice that the argument that Elihu is making is not, Job, you're a sinner and he's trying to pull you back from the pit. He is speaking broadly about suffering in general and saying, this is the reason why suffering is allowed to happen. And he points it down verse 
verse 28 through 30. He's redeemed my soul from going down to the pit. My life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. He's saying there's a reason that God allows suffering to exist in the world. And one of the reasons that God allows there to be pain and hurt and suffering is so that we would draw our eyes to God and pay attention to God so that to keep ourselves from the pit. C.S. Lewis, I thought it said it in a pretty concise way. And he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That was in his book, The Problem of Pain. And there's a lot of truth to that. You aren't paying attention to God when things are going great. But it becomes a megaphone when the time of pain. In pain, we do like Job. And that's what we identified with Job like back there in chapter 3 when he began. And he's just going through all of these feelings and what is going on. And this is, this is horrible and all that's going on. And that's we identify with that. And here's Elihu going, that is a way that God instructs. And friends, that is a message that is found throughout the scriptures again and again and again. And I'll show them to you like Proverbs 3 verse 11. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father and a son whom he delights. The parallel of that in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but God, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me pause on that passage for a minute. I don't believe the way to read Proverbs and the re- way to read Hebrews 12 is now to undo the book of Job and say, so this is what God does, is when you do something wrong, God blasts you because as a parent, that's what you do with your kids is you blast them when, when they've done something wrong. That's not the concept. There is a distinction between straight punishment and notice he's using the idea of discipline and instruction that is going on in that. That there is usefulness in what is happening in, in these things. Because it would be far cry for the writer of Hebrews to say, To these Christians, remember how chapter 12 is talking about the suffering that these Christians are enduring. To turn around and say, well the reason why you're suffering as Christians is because God is punishing you. Really? That doesn't fit the context. Chapter 11 right before that was what? All the people of faith who what happened to all of them? suffered for their faith. And it's chapter 12 coming along and saying, and therefore that's what God does with these great faithful people is He punished them and that's why they were being sawn in two and all the things that you read about. 
as a misread of, of Hebrews chapter 12 to layer that into this, because that cannot be what God is saying. And so I took these faithful people and I punished them, and, and that's what's what I'm doing. No. What is chapter 11 about? But consider all of their suffering. In chapter 12, he's talking to these Christians who are also going through suffering. Why does God allow suffering? He can just put a cap on that and turn that thing off, right? Let's just turn that spigot off. No more pain. Let's let's end that. Why does it exist? This is what God is describing. Because this is for our good. Because we need suffering to be instructive to our lives. That it teaches us. It's not God punishing for sins. It is simply God's message to, as Elihu would say, to wake us up sometimes, to turn our souls back from the pit, to remind us about what we need before God. Which is why so many of these texts speak this way when the Apostle Paul. Not only that... We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, why would you rejoice in your sufferings if you're being punished for your sins? That's not what's happening. Why are you rejoicing in suffering? Because we know that it is God being instructive. Because it produces endurance and character and hope. And that hope does not disappoint. This is what Paul is saying is that these things are given to us and allowed by God so that it would teach us and make us become what God wants us to be. Why count it all joy when you meet all kinds of trials? Because God's punishing you? No. That's not it. That's why these three friends have failed in their, in their counsel before Job. And James even makes the same point. Why would you count it all joy? Because this is a way God speaks. This is instructive. And here's James. Because it produces steadfastness. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Over and over again, the scriptures are giving us this picture that what God is doing with suffering and with pain is truly an expression of the mercy and the grace of God. Now, at the surface, that sounds counterintuitive. Let me give you an illustration to help it, though. Have you ever burned your hand really badly? Yeah. I think all of us have done something pretty dumb where we've done that. I, one time I was in the bathroom and uh, Teresa had left her curling iron on on the towel bar and I slipped and grabbed that thing. Oh man, did that hurt. That hurt for days, days and days and days. <laughs> just the pain inside. Just... So is God just really mean to us by, you know, allowing, we have all these pain sensors in our body, you know, terrible. Why didn't he just not, you don't have to put all these nerves of pain and all that. Why is that? So you wouldn't melt your flesh off permanently as you were holding on to something burning. You need something to tell you, let go, dummy, you're holding something hot. It's instructive. That's what pain is supposed to do. The pain that is now moving through your body is telling you, get the heavy thing off your foot. Get the pain wherever it is in your body. Take care of it immediately before it causes permanent damage. Right? What's God saying? And what's Elihu saying? I do these things before it would be something permanent. That's why I allow this to happen. That's why there's suffering, and that's why there's pain. It's so that we would learn to keep us from having a suffering of eternal consequence. These things are allowed by God as He runs the world so that we would stop and reflect and consider 
I need to learn how this is going to make me what God is trying to make me. How can this be instructive to my life? What is the pain teaching me? This is what God says he allows it for us to do it for our good. Friends, that's exactly why any good parent does what they do, right? To their children for their good to prevent future permanent damage to their life. We act now preparing for their future. That's why God uses that analogy in Hebrews 12. Is He's not saying, I'm blasting you for every sin you've ever committed, so take one cross step and I'm going to get you. That just doesn't even fit the context. But he's saying, I'm the perfect father. And the way I'm running the world is one of the ways that I speak to all people that in pain it would cause you to turn your eyes to God. Consider the truth of the matter. If this earth were perfection, would anybody turn their eyes to God in the slightest? I'd like to say, oh yeah, you know, sure we would. You know, if you just made paradise on earth, we would do everything you said. If you believe that, go read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again. See how that works. Because there were two people who had a chance at that. (laughs) No, we're not going to do that. We're absolutely not going to do that. Perfection will not cause us to now obey God perfectly. It is through pain and suffering that we awaken ourselves and look toward God. And that's why so many places in the scriptures tell us that God has made this world in this way so that we would be tested and we would be refined. We would be instructed that we would be made wiser so that we wouldn't lose our souls. That's why I love First Peter. That, you know, you have your faith that's being tested for its genuineness. You're going through the fire right now. Is it painful? Of course it's painful to go through trials and suffering and pain. It's awful. But is there an instruction behind that? Sure. And that's what God is trying to say is this isn't senseless suffering that God has just allowed for there to be pain. And as much as it seems like when I grab something really hot and go, God, that is just terrible that you made it, that we have all these pain receptors. There's a reason behind that that was instructive to help me from something far worse. And that's what God is trying to tell us. And ultimately what Elihu does in his first speech is he is simply leaving it in Job's lap and saying, are you listening to what God was saying through this? Are you listening to the message of God. This is why Job later on will go, yeah, I I did say too much. I, I didn't say the things that I should have said, that God should have been defended in all of this, that he should have been defended in his suffering rather than challenged, rather than called into wrong in the things that had happened. And so Elihu begins with such a great message to remind us that these things, the way that God runs the world and the things that he allows in this life, he has allowed this world to be this way with purpose. And there is instruction that can be found from the circumstances that we go through. And thus Peter, Paul, James, and the Proverbs all say, so look to these times as a way to learn how you can become and be what God has called you to be. I'll just end by saying, 
I, I look at my life and, you know, who knows how much more time God will give me and how many more trials I may experience. I would argue standing here at 41 years old, I have had two significant trials in my life. And those two have been the most transforming of anything I've ever experienced in terms of my faith in God and in terms of changing me to what God wants me to be. I would like to say it was through all the times in between the trials when things were great, but it is through hardship. It is through loss. It is through distress. Those are the things that are to call us to turn our eyes to God and go, okay, now I will bend the knee like I ought to bend the knee before you. Yes, I will submit my will to you. And I'll stop acting like I'm in charge and I'm the boss. And I will yield because I get it. I'm hearing the message of what I'm supposed to be before you. That's all Elihu says to Job at this point. Lord willing, next week... Elihu's got some more. He'll take another round and we'll look a little bit more about how God runs the world and explain about suffering and why things go the way they go. Thank you for your time. We're going to sing a song and we're going to invite you to come to a loving and gracious God. And I hope you see from Elihu's words, God has created the world purposefully. Things are the way they are with reason. We sit back from our small perspective and we say well I don't like all this (laughs) it's kind of where Job goes I don't like how this is going and it is a call for us to put our faith and put our trust in God Uh, he knows what he's doing and how he runs the world and he has a wisdom that we do not have and that we must then submit to him and we call for you to do that tonight that you turn away from your sins that you be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins if you have not become a follower of Jesus If you are a follower, would you consider your position before God? And I hope that the suffering that you have had in your life, that you have allowed that to be instructive. If you're presently in trials, to allow that to be instructive to you. How can this be used for God's glory? How can this be used for the kingdom of God? And how can this be used so that I can become what God has called me to be as a faithful disciple of him? Can we help you in that? Won't you come now while we stand and while we